It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Good morning, guys. This is going to be a good one today. This is one of those when we're planning to and putting the show notes together that Bo and I looked at each other and said, this has got a lot of meat on it. So this is going to hit all the people that love the meat of our podcast, but we're also going to have some information at the end of the show that it gets into some current events that I know you guys that kind of like to hear, get a, a peek into what our thoughts are on some of the things that are going on in the economy and elsewhere. We're going to kind of open up the door and let you see some of that as well, because Bo's got some interesting things that have happened to him. And then I've, um, in my tax preparation, you know, I don't do a lot of taxes, but I still do enough taxes to keep me sharp on what's going on out there in the tax code world. And uh, I noticed something that really had kind of slipped past me with the tax changes of 2009 from 2008. So I, I kind of want to share that with my listenership to kind of let you guys know, because everybody I've shared this with has kind of been like, no way. And I kind of want to let you know what, what's going on with that. But today, for the people that love just the meat, don't want to get into current events and everything, and that's why we're doing it first, so they can drop off if they're not loving, um, if they just want to get the meat and get in and get out. We're going to be talking about tax-efficient investing, because uh, there's a there's a lot of people, We and I'll tell you, we got an email from a listener, and I'm going to read his email momentarily and, and get into how you should look at your own personal investments and to become more tax-efficient, so you can keep more in your back pocket and keep it away from, from uncle. So... With that, let me go ahead and give you the intro for the show. This is the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I have um, also my associate, Bo Hansen, is at the microphone. A lot of you guys have been giving us some positive feedback on Bo. Um, but if you want to go check out the, the show notes, you can go to money-guy.com. You can also write the show. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. And who knows, maybe in a few weeks we'll um, give Bo a, a Money Guy email address. I'm just kind of scared to see... If he gets more emails than me, it might actually hurt the ego a little bit. But, um, Bo, um, you have any thoughts before we jump right in and start talking about tax-efficient investing? One, one thing I did want to throw in there, we got an email last week from, I uh, believe it was Hank, and I just want to say, you know, we had talked about, Brian had mentioned using PayTrust um, to pay all of his bills. Hank just sent an email, I thought it was important to note this. He said that what he does is he pays all of his bills um, with credit cards to try to get um, as many of those bonuses and cashback rewards as he can. I think that's a great idea as long as you don't mind keeping up with it. So, Hank, thank you so much for the email, and uh, thanks for the tip. I'd also make sure you're a disciplined guy because, you know, the, the, very often we hear people that have built up these credit card loans. So don't, you know, it's one thing, don't don't let the points drive you to get yourself in a financial pit, though. But, you know, make sure you're, you are paying off the bills on a month-to-month basis. Now, I, I keep hitting the microphone stand because, once again, we're kind of turning... We're doing this a little different. We're actually facing each other because in the past, with, now that I brought Bo on the show, there were some times when I turned and it would mess up. So I apologize if I keep hitting this thing. But let's jump right in. And I got an email from listener Jim. It says, Hi, Brian. As a premium subscriber, I just finished, finished listening to your October of 2009 podcast titled The Tortoise or the Hare. What a great topic. It really opened my eyes as I always thought stocks outperform other investments over long periods of time. Another topic for your radio show, at least I think it would be one, would be on mutual fund tax efficiency. What does one look for in finding a good tax-efficient mutual fund? With taxes rising in the future, people should be concerned with this topic. Morningstar has a tab titled Tax, but I guess I don't quite understand it. Could you either email me with an answer or do a show on this topic? Thanks. Keep up the great work. 
I actually said good work. I guess I had <laughs> took it up another level. Um, keep up the good work with your show, Jim. Jim, I think that's a great question, but we're actually going to go a little beyond just the, the mutual funds because I want to make sure our listenership understands that there are some dif- differences out there based upon the different type of investment vehicle you use. And, and let me explain what I mean by that is that you have, you can be investing through mutual funds and, you know, mutual funds can do stocks, bonds, you know, they can do about anything. It can even do gold. Um, and then you've got ETFs, which ETFs, I got to tell you, in the universe of investing, ETFs can do about anything these days too. They're just modified indexes, essentially, where you're, you're going out there and buying a basket of holdings. And instead of having a manager out there looking at it, you physically own a, a, a chiseled out portion of a portfolio. That's what the ETF is. And then the last is, is just individual investments. And when you go out and do individual investments, that can be stocks, bonds, but you're actually buying the product directly and you physically, personally own that stock or bond. Well, Let's talk about the differences of this, is that a lot of times people will will talk about how stock investing, buying individual stocks, is specifically the separate account management. That's where you the people out there, once you build up some wealth and you go and you talk to a big wirehouse, they're going to try to talk you into investing into these separate account managed type platforms where you'll go out and you'll give them several hundred thousand dollars and they're going to buy, chisel you out a portfolio made up of a number of stocks and you're not, you're going to own 10 shares of this, 10 shares of that. Um, I've been there, done that with, um, when I first started managing money, the first firm I was at, we did use a separate account management firm and I even put my own father's money in that because I was, you know, they had this sexy presentation came out. It seemed like this is what all the rich guys were doing. So I was like, well, if if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And um, I got to tell you, it didn't work out so well for for my family on it because, first of all, it was driving me crazy. My father would call me every time they bought three to four shares of a different stock. And then the paperwork that comes to you is just amazing. Now, think about, you know, if any of you have ever bought uh, a few shares of any type of stock, say Coca-Cola, Disney, whatever you thought, you know, I enjoy that product, so I'm going to go buy that stock. You've probably noticed that you get these things called proxies. They tell you to vote on, you know, the who's going to be on the board, you know, changes that they're trying to make, and as well as you get the annual statements. And there's a lot of paperwork coming down the pipe when you actually own individual stocks, not to mention the confirmations, because trading's going on quite a bit. So that didn't work out for us, but I want to talk about the difference, um, because a lot of times when they're selling these type of things, they will also tell you these are much more tax efficient than buying mutual funds because you physically own this and, and you don't have to pay capital gains until you sell this holding or the manager who's doing these separate account management sales. Well, there's some truth in that. And but I want to tell you that it's all based upon the timing of what's going on in the economy. And I never hear anybody in the financial press really talking about this. And the difference is and ETFs are kind of the same way. They're just an easier way to get into those separate account managed type platform on a much more cost effective way. And I I do like ETFs in certain situations. Um, but let me explain what I mean this because I'm kind of talking all around it, but have, I haven't actually hit the bullseye to tell you what I mean by all this. Mutual funds, because you are buying into a manager or an index mutual fund where they've already bought the portfolio of holdings, you can either buy into a portfolio that has embedded losses, meaning that you're buying into a portfolio that is trading the value of the, the holdings, the stocks or whatever's in there, is cheaper than when it was originally purchased by the mutual fund. So it's an embedded loss. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, 
you can also have in a really good economy. You can buy into a mutual fund that has huge embedded capital gains, meaning that, um, say they bought Apple back when it was, you know, what, what did it get down to, Bo? $79? $79 yeah. a share. You, you know, you could have bought into a mutual fund that bought Apple at $79 a share, and now it's trading over, well, it got close, it got over 220 yesterday. And so if you bought in yesterday on that mutual fund that has that top holding, that embedded gain, you haven't been there to enjoy that appreciation, but you potentially could get the embedded gain if they ever sell it, and then they start issuing out the capital gains. Um, but before going deeper, did I explain that well enough on how income is generated by the media? Because I don't I'm, know if I hit because sometimes I talk like a CPA. I'm, I'm going to double back a little bit and see if I can bring it back just a little bit. So, so what happens is, like you said, when you, when you're, if you own a separately managed account, you own, let's just say, 100 stocks, and then you can either buy and sell those stocks. And as those stocks are bought and sold, you have to pay capital gains. That's nothing new. We all, we all know this. Well, what happens, let's say you invest in, in mutual fund A, B, C, D, E. Um, you know, you're investing in this mutual fund. Well, what that manager's doing is he's going out and he's buying stocks and selling stocks. So even though that you're bought, you bought into a mutual fund and you own this mutual fund, and let's just say you own it for the whole year, as you own that mutual fund, that manager is in there placing trades. He's buying some companies, he's selling some companies. Well, as he's placing these trades, he's generating capital gains inside that mutual fund. So even though you haven't bought or sold anything, the manager who's actually managing the fund that you're investing in is buying and selling. And what that buying and selling does is it creates either gains or losses. And that's when Brian comes back and he talks about the embedded gains or embedded losses. In a down market, um, if the manager's losing money, you may end up being able to get into a mutual fund that has a large embedded loss. And this is kind of what we saw in 2008. A lot of the mutual funds that we bought into um, in the first of 2009, after we did some, lo some loss harvesting, um, had huge embedded losses. And what that means is, let's say that because of the trading that happened inside of a mutual fund, it had a, an embedded loss of 20%. Essentially what that means is you can make 20% in that mutual fund before you had to start paying taxes, meaning that's before they're going to start issuing capital gains out to you. Well, the same thing happens in a good market. If the manager's been buying and selling all year and there's a large gain, at the end of the year, the mutual fund will do what they call distributing those capital gains, which essentially means instead of the mutual fund manager being responsible for paying the tax on all those trades, he spreads it out among all the shareholders in that mutual fund. So at the end of a good year, you may get a distribution of 20% of capital gains. What that means is that even if you weren't bought into that, if you just happen to happen to be unlucky, get in that mutual fund the day before they release that, you're going to have to pay tax on that distribution even though you didn't nece necessarily get that run up. Right. And that, and that's and that's exactly the, why you've got to be very careful because I'll tell you mutual funds do their capital gain distributions typically. I mean, some do them on a quarterly basis, but most of them, the lion's share of mutual fund managers will issue their capital gains in the, the month of December. So that's why you always have to be very, very careful about investing at the end of the year. And that's why I'll tell you, if you're in a really good economy, a lot of times at the end of the year, I won't buy mutual funds um, when I'm buying some of the large cap holdings and so forth. I'll buy the S&P ETF because that, that makes things, you don't have to worry about buying into that embedded capital gain. But that that's a great way to, that you've got to make sure you understand that. And I think we've taken a very, I don't want to say complex, but we've taken a concept that, that you need to pay attention. Now, let me tell you, how does the individual like yourself says, okay, this is great. So now you've told me that there's might be embedded gains or losses. And after coming out of a bad economy of 2008 and the first part of 2009, how do I determine if the mutual funds I have 
are, are you know have those gains or losses built into them already. Well, what you want to do is go to Morningstar.com, and um, I see it from with my my eagle vision here, my LASIK corrective vision that I had two years ago, that um, Bo has one of the the screens open on Morningstar.com, and the category you're looking for is potential. I don't potential is not a word, but potential capital gain exposure percentage, and you'll see when he'll give you a percentage of whether it's positive or negative on if it's got gain or losses. Which tab is that on, Bo? What What, what I did is I went to Morningstar.com, and then I just typed in one of our one of our favorite mutual funds. You can type in any mutual fund, and then you're going to notice a tab that says tax, and this is actually the tab that the listener was referring to in his email. Well, when you pull this up. At first, it doesn't look like it gives you a ton of information because what it does is it gives you a three-year average, five-year average, and 10-year average. It shows you the pre-tax return, then the tax-adjusted return, and then it shows you the percent rake in category and the tax-cost ratio. Um, but I think the, the line that Brian's talking about is the very last line is potential capital gain exposure. And I think that's the one that you want to look at to really, to really see the tax efficiency of your mutual fund. The um, the next thing that and, and I'm going to put Bo on the spot because I'm not so sure it's out there on the website, but I'm going to have him digging behind the scenes to look while I'm talking about it. There's another line item that I know on the prof- professional version of Morningstar, the actual software that I know we have and most professional managers do have, is that there is a tab that's called turnover or it's a it's a it's a line item. And your turnover percentage is exactly what it sounds like. It tells you how often that manager is turning over their investments, how often are they changing their actual specific investments. And it'll also usually tell you the number of holdings that they have right there together. So you'll have turnover and then the number of holdings. And, and I can tell you just some basic understanding things that you just need to know by the nature of investing is that uh, small companies, international companies, as well as bonds are going to have a great deal more turnover than some of the large cap holdings. Um, because it's just not, when you're buying like a, an S&P 500 type investment, a large company, which, you know, as a household name, you know, those things are probably going to stay relevant to the economy for a while. So they're not going, those large cap funds are not going to have as high of a turnover as your small company mutual funds, your international mutual funds, and then bond mutual funds look out because they they have a tremendous amount of turnover because you, you see managers constantly trying to squeeze and, and, and eke out, you know, inefficiencies in the bond marketplace to kind of buy and trade and sell those, those mutual funds to make money. Did you find anything, Bo, or if I put you on the spot and put you on a dead end? No, yes, I, I found it. And I'm, let me tell you what I did is I'm just, right now I'm looking at just Fidelity Spartan 500 Index. The ticker for that is F-U-S-E-X. Yeah, some 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 nerdy guys having fun with that ticker. I don't know, you know, the symbol for that one used to be F-S-M-K-X. And then they merged it with, do you know which, do you remember the which fund? Spartan Equity Fund. They, they merged it with the, but I, I just, that ticker symbol, and I mean, you can, I'm not going to elaborate on it, but can, if you go look at the ticker symbol, I have to believe that somebody was kind of giggling as they, as they figured out this, because I don't even know how Fidelity Spartan 500 Index comes up with that ticker, but that, that's a whole nother thing. Go ahead, go ahead. So if you go, if you go to Morningstar.com and you type in F-U-S-E-X, you're going to pull up just a Spartan 500 Index. Well, the very first page that pops up is the quote page. You're going to see the net asset value, the day change. Well, if you look kind of towards the middle of the screen, um, maybe a little bit towards the right, you're going to see some categories, yield, total assets, load, expenses, and then you're going to see the number you're looking for, turnover. And just like Brian said, index funds are going to have a low turnover because basically what they're doing is they're trying to just um, replicate an index. 
So the turnover for this one is 8%. So that means in a given year, the manager of this fund turns over 8% of the holdings, meaning buying and selling 8% of the holdings over the year. Um, and that's, I think that's probably going to be pretty standard for yeah, a most, large most, cap index. Most index funds are very tax efficient because index funds, by their very nature, they don't have a, a manager overlooking them. So they don't have a lot of turnover. And turnover, as you can imagine, the more you buy and sell, the more potential you have to have taxable transactions occur. So index funds in general are going to be a lot more tax efficient than manager funds. Now, we're going to talk about in a minute don't let that com completely skew your vision of how good a mutual fund is, though. I don't want you getting rid of a great manager and a great fund just because they do have a high turnover. We'll, we'll kind of talk over We'll talk about that in a minute, and um, we'll go into it. But I, w I do want to go back because I don't think I kind of completed the circle of, the, of what I was trying to get, the point I was trying to make when I was talking about separate account management. A lot of times in those sales presentations, they will tell you you can avoid a lot of the tax problems with mutual funds with these embedded losses. Well, that cuts both ways, as I've already mentioned, is that we just came out of a cruddy economy, so there are there is a potential that, sometimes, that a lot of mutual funds out there still have some embedded losses. So it's actually a better time to invest in mutual funds than it is the separate account management because you have to, you can take advantage of those embedded losses, and that's kind of the point I didn't make when we were talking about separate account management. Now, one of the things Bo, Bo and I talked about pre-show was efficiency of vehicles. I know whenever we do what's called the investment policy statement, that's what right after a prospect becomes a client, and we're putting together their portfolio, their, their, their kind of layout of their investments, we always have this great little spreadsheet that we've designed that has their, we, we put all their different accounts in different columns. And we, we try to group them by what's taxable accounts, what's tax-deferred. Tax-deferred are like your IRAs, your, your 401ks, your simples, your SEPs, those type of things where you get tax-deferred growth, meaning right now while you're contributing to those accounts, they are growing without paying on, taxes on an annual basis. But when you actually physically retire and start pulling that money out, uncle's going to get his cut. That's when the tax man's going to come take his cut, and that's why it's called tax-deferred growth. It's because you're just putting off that taxation until a later time. Well, then after we have the, the tax-deferred, we have the tax-free accounts, and that's the Roth 401ks, Roth 403bs, and your Roth IRAs, of course. And those are, and the reason we break it out into different segments is because under current tax code, now realize tax codes change constantly, and we are going to have a change after this coming year. But, um, Right now, your taxable accounts, you want to try to do things that are going to pay you dividends, go have capital gains, those type of things. You want to take advantage of that 15% tax rate. Now, that's going to change. Um, in your tax-deferred accounts, you want to have your fixed income and items that are going to pay you ordinary income rates, and that's your bonds, that's your long-short mutual funds, things that are going to be doing a lot of trading on the short-term basis, not the long-term basis, but on the short-term, you, you know, as well as issuing out interest and other things like that. So you want to see your, your fixed income and bonds typically in your tax-deferred accounts. And then last, your tax-free accounts, that's your, your Roth IRAs. You want to have things that you think are really going to stick it to the government, where you can hopefully make a lot of money and really hide, you know, legally hide money from the tax man. And that's usually your growth type of investments. Now, there is a catch to that. Um, if, if you do growth investments, you know how it works. The more risk you take, the more growth you're kind of expecting. So you need to do a kind of a, a, a risk 
reward type balance dance to make sure you're not going too aggressive in the Roth IRA because it is hard to, cap to capture those losses. If you go out there and take a super risky investment and then you end up being wrong and lose money, it, it is a pain to take a loss out of a Roth IRA. Recharacterizations are not exactly something that I know I want to wake up and try to do for clients to capture a, you know, a few thousand dollar loss. It's just not a fun process. It's much easier to take losses obviously in your taxable accounts. Bo, I know I just covered a lot, but I could see your head, Bob, and anything else that you want to add on some of those? No, I think I think that's great. So I think um I think where we should go from here is so you've been listening, so you've kind of taken in what we said. Well, how can you apply this to your portfolio? Um, so you've designed, you know, you've designed your accounts. You have your Roth IRA, you have your four hundred one k. Then you just have your individual brokerage account. Um, you've put all your income producing stuff inside of your tax deferred. You've put all your growth stuff inside of your tax free. So now what you have is you have your brokerage account. And let's be honest, just because of limits, typically. Um, brokerage accounts can become larger than your other accounts just because you can't get a lot of money in that tax deferred because they have limits and you can't get a ton of money in the tax free because they also have limits. So you are going to have a portfolio made up of taxable securities. So on a year to year basis, how can you plan for tax efficiency? How can you kind of play the tax game? And one thing that we do here, and, I, and I'm assuming that most financial planning firms do because it's kind of um, tax planning 101, is we do what's called harvesting losses. Uh, we've actually done some shows on this in the past, but this is really something that we do every single year at the end of the year. We try to harvest as many losses as we can. And, and it's important because of this, like in years like 2008, when the market really gets hammered, you can really, really harvest losses. Brian, you want to kind of explain? Yeah. When he talks about, because harvesting losses, you hear that, it's also, you know, I have a, a vi immediate visual of a farmer out there, and it really is kind of that whole process, is that you know you're in a rough patch when you, when you have, you know, you get into a 2000, fourth quarter of 2008, or the downturn of 2000, 2001, 2002, and you sit there, you're sitting there with a lot of losses in your portfolio, and that's a disgusting feeling when you have all those losses, but there is a positive, that silver lining is, is that you can sell something, and buy a very similar type of holding, meaning you could sell a small cap mutual fund investment, lock in the losses, and then buy back a very similar, or you know, it can't be exactly, you can get in trouble if you do that, but you can buy a similar, um, a, an equivalent small cap mutual fund to replace it. So you haven't really changed your allocation, and if the market makes a great recovery, you're still going to be there because you never really came out of the market. It's not like you're timing the market or doing anything. All you're doing is you're locking or harvesting in those existing losses that you've already had in the portfolio. And you say, well, why is that important? Why do I need to harvest those losses? The reason is, is that you're going to get into a period in the future because let's face it, we've, we have all kind of research and we've done numbers where if you looked at the markets on a year-to-year -year basis, really for the last 55 years, 75% of the time that is going to be a positive return in that invest in that investment portfolio that you've got. So, you know, every three out of four years you're going to make money in your investments. So you want to lock it in in that down year because three, four years down the road, you're going to have some some gains. You, there's no doubt that, you know, just because you're down right now that you're not going to have gains in the future. And you want to be able to offset those gains, but you also want to be able to take in that $3,000 tax loss that you can put on your income tax return each year. And there's no reason not to do this because, like I said, you're, it's not like you're – a lot of people don't do it because of the psychological impact because a lot of people have in their head they haven't lost a dime until they actually sell a losing security. And I even have – 
prospects come in and tell me that their portfolio manager has never lost their money. And I say, how is that possible that you've never had a losing investment? And then I look at their portfolio statement, and yes, they've never had a, a, a 1099 that they got at the end of the year that had a loss on it, but that's because the, their investment advisor just let all the turkeys sit out there and kind of based. And um, you, you see investments that have lost 50, 60% just sitting on the portfolio statement. I say, well, what about this? Oh, that's that's not a loss because we haven't sold it. And I, and I always have to remind clients, no, that's not the way it works. You have to look at what your portfolio is worth on January 1 of a year and then what it's work, worth at December 31st of a year. And the difference is your gain or loss. I mean, I know it's not for tax purposes your gain or loss, but that's what you need to be figuring out if your guy's doing you a good job by looking at that difference and figuring out. So I'm always amazed when people buy that argument. You've seen it. We've seen that two or three times in the last, what, what do you say, nine months, Bo, we've oh, seen that absolutely. argument? And it, I just find that very, these are very smart people that fall for this too. And I think it just is one of those things. But there's no shame in locking in those losses and playing the tax game. Don't let the psychological side lead you into making a bad decision. The other thing that, um, I will tell you, and I've kind of already hinted at it, and Bo's looking at me because he, he has screwed this saying up all the time, and he finally pulled me aside and said, Brian, quit messing that up because it really kind of makes me cringe like you know, fingers on a chalkboard when you say this all wrong. And, and what, I, what I say, but I've always said it poorly, I'm going to say it right today because Bo's even written it down to make sure I don't screw it up, is you don't want to let the tax tell wag the investment dog. Um, and both smiling and nodding his head. And the, what we mean by that is, is yes, taxes are a big part of your investments, and they do impact what's going on. But don't get rid of a really good investment manager just because of one tax bill that you get. Um, you, you've got to make sure you're looking at the quality of the investment decisions and not just the taxes. Now, taxes are very important. I don't, I don't want to underscore, but there is a fine balance and a walk that you have to do on figuring out how tax efficient you want to be versus if you've got a manager that consistently outperforms their peers and their marketplace. Um, Bo, what else do you want to talk about before we jump out of the meat section and kind of get into the current events of what's going on out there in the world? I, I think that's I think that's a great point, and I think um, I'm just one real life example is that um, at the in the end of 2008, as we were harvesting losses, there's one mutual fund manager I have in our mind, and we love this guy. He's super super good, super smart. We read his commentary all the time. Um, but his fund kind of does something unique, and what we feel like is we don't feel like there's an adequate substitute out there for his fund. So even though in 2008 he had some losses, and we probably could have gone through and harvested those losses, we chose not to sell that mutual fund manager because we felt like he was so good, and that's a prime example of not letting that tax tail wag the investment dog because it really just was not something we wanted to let go of. Um, so on that, I'll go ahead and say, so that's kind of the meat. That's the, that's the efficient tax investing part of the podcast. Now I think what we want to do is we're going to hop into some current events. So those of you who don't like it whenever we touch on anything that could be construed as political or, um, you know, or anything else, feel free. You know, love you being a listener. Love you coming in. But we are going to talk about kind of some of the things in current events that are, you know, really got me going here recently because it seems like three things have popped to mind in the last week that I, I just, I told Bo, I said, we have to talk about this because I said, I just can't believe that I'm not seeing this more out there in the financial media. So I will at least want my listeners. Um, Bo, I'm going to kind of sandwich you in between the two things that I have here. So you're going to be number two um, talking about your, your because you, you guys who are who diehard listeners and listen to everything, you know Bo has had a hard time 
getting his first time home buyer credit. Bo bought is a proud owner of a house he bought last year. And he um, went and we amended his 2008 tax return. And he's going to kind of walk you through the, um, the funny narrative, the funny story about what happened on getting that, that child tax credit. I mean, not that's child. You don't have children yet, fortunately. But, um, but the first time home buyer credit. But I do want to talk about, I do some taxes. And um, one of the tax returns I did, I was kind of shocked by. Because I just couldn't believe that these changes had really, I, I'm sure I read these changes when I was looking at, you know, when you see an article that comes in the, the, the newspaper and it says these are the proposed changes in the tax code. And, you you know, you read them and you see certain things, you, you don't realize what the actual impact is until you see it to numbers. So I want to share these with you because I have a, a couple that I have both their 2008 and their 2009 numbers because I did their taxes and this is a married couple, and they have several children. And what I find very interesting, now these are, they're very modest, I will tell you. Um, great people. They have made, they've decided they've made a personal choice that only one spouse is going to work because the, the mother wants to stay at home with the children. So they have made the personal choice that they're going to live, you know, within their means and not take on a lot of stuff. Um, and I will tell you, they make in the mid-30s. They make in the mid-30s with their income. Um, he works for a big company, um, and he, he, he works in a position that, that's very stable. It's going to be needed for many years. He probably gets some type of retirement benefit as well. Um, and what I'm shocked by is how close his income was. Both the years it was in the mid-30s, but how vastly different 2009 is from 2008. And I want to share with you, last year he paid into the system about $1,800 in tax withholding. This year, he only paid in $732 in the system. So you hear that, and you're like, wow, you know, um, since he makes in the mid-30s, probably doesn't pay any taxes. So he probably got back in 2008 $1,800, and in 2009, probably got back $700. But that's not the case. In 2008, he did pay $1,800 in the system, but at the end of the year, he ended up getting back a refund of four th a little over $4,000. So there was a, a $2,200, close to $2,300 refund that was above and beyond what he paid into the system, which came up to be about 6% of his entire pay. Um, so, you know, and I can understand. I will tell you, and that's what I am perfectly fine. I do think that there's nothing wrong with having a progressive tax system. I think people who do make more money do need to pay more than those who are just struggling to make ends meet. I have no problem with that. Um, what I am shocked by, though, is that when somebody can pay into the system, get back what they've put in, which I, I rightfully think that he shouldn't pay a lot of taxes. But then I'm surprised when you hear with the 2009, I think you're going to be shocked, too. So in 2008, put in 1890 bucks, got back a little over 4000 bucks. So there's a 20, close to $2,300 difference there, 6% of the pay. Listen to what happened in 2009. I only paid in 700 bucks into the system but got back a refund of close to $7,600. So what changed? This is what changed. And by the way, his refund was close to 20% of his entire pay, above and beyond what he put in. And, you know, and when I tell people that people are not only getting back what they paid in, they're getting back thousands. I'm talking about $7,000 on top of what they paid into the system, above and beyond. That's a lot of money, guys. And I don't know how the system, I got to tell you, I don't know how the system is going to be able to afford when we're sending out six to $7,000 out there to families 
left and right when we have a, an income problem here in America right now. Tax revenues are off dramatically. People just aren't making the money that they were making a few years ago. And here we are sending out checks of six to $7,000 above and beyond. And what, may, what was that difference? What changed between 2008 and 2009? Here's what changed. A lot of the credits were in the past not refundable, meaning that you were eligible to get these credits, but if your income wasn't enough to generate and you, you, got, you got all your money back from the tax system you know, that you'd paid into the year, you couldn't then take the credits that they were available to you and just get that money above and beyond what you had paid into the system. They changed that in 2009. That was under one of the tax proposals, and um, they, they've changed it now where these are fully refundable credits. The child tax credit is one of those. So if you have children, even though you haven't paid that money into the system, you can, if you have three children, you can get three grand above and beyond what you paid into it. Also, the earned income credit. That's for people who, um, who do work, but they also have children and other things at home. They have, that, that earned income credit has been increased for, for the children, plus it is fully refundable. And then there's the work, making work pay credit. So like I said, you had somebody who paid in $700 in the system, but it ended up getting back close to $7,600. That's $6,800 above and beyond. That person should not be paying any taxes. I completely agree with that because they're doing everything they can to make ends meet, doing a good job raising the kids. Um, but I, I have a problem as a taxpayer seeing somebody get back close to seven grand above and beyond what they paid into the system when we don't even have money coming into the system like that's, that's needed right now. Um, I just I worry about the government. I, I really, really do in some of the, the decision-making that they're doing. I'd love to hear your thoughts to see what, what you think because I'll tell you, this is a crazy world we live in right now. We, we have kind of this separation right now where the states and local government are getting hammered. I mean, we're firing teachers, teachers for God's sake. I mean, who, who thinks that we need to fire teachers, but that's exactly what's going on right now in this bad economy. But somehow, it's not that way in the federal government. There's this separation where the federal government's cranking and doing, going wide open and giving out these huge checks. And I've got a story I'm gonna, after I'm going to share after Bo gets done. I did, it, it doesn't pass the common sense test anymore. And I wonder, what are we going to do as a country as we're sending out all this money that we really don't have? I'd love to get your thoughts and, and see what you think because everybody I've shared that with, they are shocked to hear that a couple that just last year got you know $2,200, $2,300 above and beyond what they paid in. This year now getting close to $7,000 above and beyond. And now 20% of their pay is actually now coming from the government. That's the equivalent of now they have the same pay structure as a person making 50 grand paying taxes. So the government has essentially subsidized their lifestyle, which is very odd to me. Now, Bo, tell us the other crazy thing the government's doing. Tell us about your, um, your, your first-time homebuyer credit. So what Brian alluded to is that last year I made the decision to go ahead and purchase my first home. Um, First time I've ever bought a home, and so I was entitled to the first uh, first time home buyer credit of eight thousand dollars. So what I did is I, I bought my home last August. On August twenty first, I amended my two thousand eight tax return because it was a special way the tax law was written that said that even though you're buying a house in two thousand nine, you can actually retroactively amend your two thousand eight tax return and go ahead and get the refund. So I thought, okay, that's a great idea. I think I'll go ahead and do that. You're trying to stimulate the economy. Okay. So, so on August twenty first, I amended my two thousand eight tax return. Well, a few weeks go went by, and I did some research, and I found out they said it usually takes ten to twelve weeks to process. So I thought, okay, that's fine. Um, then on December 16th, I got a letter from the IRS saying we need more information. We want a copy of a bank statement, settlement statement, 
Um, we also want to see a current driver's license with your new address. Basically, because of all the fraud in the system, they were auditing my return because they just wanted to make sure that I was the actual person who bought this house and that I was eligible for the credit. They weren't really auditing, though. They were just asking for additional right, information. Right, right. It was not an audit. There's a big difference between an audit and asking for additional Very information. True. So, and the reason for this is all the fraud is all the fraud assessed with first-time homebuyers. So I did that. Um, not a problem. So then on February 14th, and, and all, all along this time, because it's taken, you know, months and months, so I've called the IRS, spoke with them, and they kept saying, yes, everything's in good order. We're still processing, still processing. So then on February 14th, Valentine's Day, um, I got a letter from the IRS saying, uh, Mr. Hansen, we have, uh, we have accepted your additional material, and your first-time homebuyer credit will be granted to you. You should expect a check within eight to ten weeks. Well, this <laughs> week, which is the second week in March, I actually received a check in the mail. Um, now, I, I had kind of been, you know, whining and crying to Brian. Brian, I wish they would hurry up. You know, I, I wish sure. I could go ahead and get this money. He said, well, it's okay because the, the IRS, when, usually when this sort of thing happens, they pay interest. So I said, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's not that bad. So for, for a second, in your head, I just want you to think. So the first time homebuyer, and I'll tell you, because it was my first time buying a house, I got my mortgage interest deduction. I also got to, um, to, to write off some of the closing costs. So I, had, I zeroed out my tax liability because I itemized, you know, and you take into consideration charitable contributions and all that. Um, so I was going to get the full $8,000 refund. So in your head, I want you to kind of think about what you would think reasonable interest for a six-month time period from August until March, so six to seven months, on $8,000 would be. And so in my head, I was thinking, okay, um, I know that I have a high-yield savings account right now that's earning 1.3, um, IRS probably somewhere between 1 and 1.5%. 1 well, I went to the mailbox this week, and I pulled my check out, and as soon as I saw it, I said, my goodness. And I called Brian immediately because the interest that it accrued was $280.06. And if you want to do the math on that, $280.06 on an $8,000 check is 3.5%. Just for that six-month period. Exactly. So if you annualize that over a full year, that's a 7% return that the IRS paid me because it was a lag time and when I amended my return and when I actually got the refund. So anecdotally, I told Brian, I said, man, I wish they would have held on to this for a few more years <laughs> because earning 7% isn't something you could do every day. Um, I just, and please don't misconstrue this as me not being thankful because I think this interest is a blessing. I can definitely use that extra 280 bucks, but it does not pass the common sense test is why in the world. And Brian made a good point is what happened is, is this was something I did in 2009. So what should have happened, and I'm just going through this theoretically is, is if I would have claimed this on my 2009 tax return, the way that it was supposed to be done, I would have received a check, no interest by me retroactively going back amending my 2008 return, which is kind of just a little extra caveat they did to stimulate the economy, part of the stimulus plan, by doing that and them taking six months to process it, I was able to get a 7% annualized yield interest payment. And that just blows my mind because I just don't understand how that makes sense. The other thing that I've kind of, um, and, and probably I guess my frustration is why I'm sharing some of this is because I am involved with the local political scene and we're broke. I mean, and it's not because of mismanagement or anything else. It's just there's no revenue out there in states, just like, you know, in local governments, just like you and I have to balance our budget. We can't spend more than we make. If we do, it is financial disaster. But right now, the federal government, they have the ability to print money. And they're, they're selling treasuries and doing other things. So they've kind of got this disconnect with the rest of us. And the other thing is, y'all, I know this has been all over the news media, but I want to throw in my two cents. 
There's an article that came out at the beginning of March from USA Today, and it's called Federal Pay Ahead of the Private Industry. And first off, when I hear this, I'm like, well, most people work in, for the government for the benefits. Let's face it, the benefits are what is good in government because you can go work in, in a job and you're going you're to probably get a pension, you'll get your health insurance covered. It's great benefits. And that doesn't, you know, and it's very reasonable to expect that the benefits in the pro- public sector are going to be much more expensive than the benefits on the private sector. And so USA Today in this um, study came in and it said the benefits for the average federal employee is worth about $40,785 per employee in 2008. In the private sector, that's $9,882 per private worker. Now that makes sense because the benefits should be good. You know, that's why you're willing to take a little bit less typically to go work for governments because you want those great benefits. But I was floored when I saw the next part of the article where it talked about that the actual pay for an employee of the federal government is 67691 in 2008 compared to $60,046 in the private sector. Now we have a disconnect because now not only do we have somebody who's, you know, if you add the, the 67000 plus the 40, close to 41000 you've got, you've got an income over, we're spending over a hundred, close to $110,000 per employee in the federal government if you averaged it all out. Versus the private sector, if you added their benefits plus their pay, you're spending them close to sixty-nine dollars to $70,000. We have a, a huge disconnect, an over thirty grand disconnect between what is going on in the public and private sector. And, and when you add that with the fact that now we're giving out these huge checks, we're funding taxes that were not even paid into the system. We've also got them paying interest. It's great bit higher, large bit of, you know, substantially higher than what's going on in the market for yields on cash. And you just have to ask yourself, when are they, when is somebody going to get a clue and wake up? I mean, please, please wake up and realize that these aren't great economic times. Waste and doing business the way things have been done in the past don't pass the test. The public has woken up and said, we're tired of the government not doing what is good, like we have to manage our own money, spend less money, be pay more attention to what you're paying for services and goods. And I just see a disconnect right now. And I'd love to get your input because I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're on the front end of a revolution here. I mean, you're seeing it on the state and local level. The, the governments and the lo- state and local are having to make some tough decisions. For God's sake, like I said, we're firing teachers. And these aren't decisions that people want to be making, but because it's a necessity, because there's just not money there. But then you flip the coin and you look over at the federal government, and they don't get it. They haven't caught the clue yet that, they, that you just can't go with business as usual. But somehow that, that's going on. So I just want to throw that out there. Like I said, these are more current affairs. It's a concern I have when I read the daily paper, and I worry about what's going to happen when Social Security and Medicare with the retiring baby boomers... The government has some hard decisions they need to make now so that we don't have all these dire, dire predictions that you hear some people in the, in the, the media starting to make about where the, the U.S. is and its you know, decline or rise and its standing in the world. This all plays into it. And that's why I hope, you know, I'm not trying to upset anybody. I just want to more bring it to your attention. You know, that whole tax thing about the, the person that did their taxes Um, Like I said, they should not be paying a lot of taxes. I'm even okay with them getting a little above and beyond, just a little. But when you start passing out six to seven thousand dollars on top of what they paid into the system, 
that's a lot of money, people. That's a lot of money. That's kind of like I take, you know, I don't mind, you know, I'm sure all of you out there who, who've had some success, you don't mind paying a little bit extra. It's kind of like taking out a family for, for dinner, for a birthday dinner. And you, because you do, you've been blessed, you've been fortunate, you, you know, you've made some good decisions in your life. You do have a little bit more than others. You decide you're going to take the family out for dinner to, to celebrate. It's, um, you pay for everybody's food, but it's not right when you give them the, the $100 bill at the end of the night and then they pass the change out to the people you just fed. That, that's, that's essentially what's going on. And we've got to get this thing back in order. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it, is that I don't understand. One of the things about the tax code is, is they can encourage behavior. And I would challenge anybody. I know Bo and I both do some charitable work and other things. But I would challenge anybody to go to a Habitat site where they're building a house and they're making the, the person that's going to be getting the house do some work on the house too. I would challenge you to go to a soup kitchen and go look at the way people who are receiving a benefit from a private charity, that helping hand, you know, that hand to, to help them out of the situation they're in. Go see the eyes of the people receiving those benefits and their thankfulness, their gratitude, as well as the feeling that there is hope that they can get out of the situation. And then I want you to contrast that with go to your local government office where they pay out benefits WIC and other things, and see if you get the same feeling when you, in that charitable organization. I don't understand why the tax policy has not been changed to encourage more charitable giving. I'm telling you, if I had my way with it, we would move charitable giving off of the itemized schedule, schedule A of your tax return, move it to adjustment to income, as well as create a credit. Have it in two places where the first $2,000 you give to charity you get a 50 cents on the dollar credit, maybe a quarter on every dollar. It doesn't, I mean, I'm just throwing numbers. It could be a quarter to 50 cents on the dollar credit for the first 2000 you give to encourage you to give money to charities. But then also by, you know, anything above and beyond that 2000, just make it an adjustment to income on the page one. So you don't have to itemize. And these type of things, if we could get more money in the hands of the charities, I think we could do a lot of the goals that the government's trying to do by handing these checks out. Uh, but it's, the government's just inefficient. I'm sorry. I'm part of government, and I can tell you there's certain things they're just inefficient in, and I, I just would like for a little common sense to come to Washington. I really, really would. I'm probably going to get in trouble, get some emails from this, but I, I just feel like I have to share it with you guys because they can encourage certain behavior and then take some of this off the books of the government and, and really give these people a helping hand and truly try to fix the situation instead of just passing out more things that are just going to cost us as a country. So that's my thoughts. Bo, what else do you have before I close this show out? I was going to say, the, the reason that we're bringing this up, guys, is we're not, we don't want you to agree with us. We want to know what you think. Feel free to write us. You can write Brian, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. Also, if you go out to the website, uh, money-guy.com, leave some, leave some posts on this show, and let's kind of create a forum, get some different ideas going out there. And then if you do agree with us and you just love what we're doing, um, the, you may have noticed we're still a featured podcast on iTunes. I think what's so funny is back when Brian started this thing, there were a handful of featured podcasts. Now I think there's five pages worth, and it's because of your support that we're able to stay out there and kind of stay right there on the front lines. So thank you so much. You have no idea how much that positive iTunes feedback does for us. Um, if you disagree with us, if you don't like what we're saying, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We want to know what you guys are thinking. We do this show for you. That's exactly right. And that's where our success. I mean, this is not a big corporation. We're running a fee-only firm here on the south side of Atlanta. 
We are not supported by any businesses. We've gotten some attention. I mean, we have an interview coming in, you know, a TV interview coming in in a few hours. It's pretty exciting. But um, go check us out, money-guy.com. Um, thanks for putting up with us. I know not everybody agrees with me. These are my thoughts. But I think you have to believe at least I'm trying to be reasonable about it. I'm not, I'm not one of these these people that tries to just push everything every you know that, that my way. I really do want your input, but I also want us to have an open conversation based in fact and not just where we get start throwing stuff at each other because that's where I, I got a comment you know that from that listener up in Boston or the you know who told me to try to avoid the politics. He was very polite and said you know like the show. That's the type of stuff I like because I like to have a, a, a discussion. I don't like it when it gets into those where, you know, Jesus doesn't like you because you said something bad about Dave Ramsey. I've, I've gotten those in the past, too, and those kind of bother me as well. So, But I'm your host, Brian Preston. Check us out, money-guy.com. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.